The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, January 8th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Last night, Barack Obama did a town hall-style event moderated by Anderson Cooper. Obama talked about his executive action on guns, which he acknowledged won't do a lot. But as we've said on this show, let's say your rules are 90, 95% ineffective. Since we have over 30,000 gun deaths, that means that the new rules could drop gun deaths by two or 3,000. I think the president was listening to that very point. And so if we can combine gun safety with sensible background checks and some other steps, we're not going to eliminate gun violence, but we will lessen it. And if we take that number from 30,000 down to, let's say, 28,000, that's 2,000 families who don't have to go through what the families at Newtown or San Bernardino or Charleston went through. Obama bucking for lobstar status. His proposals are so modest, and yet they're still so resisted. The arguments against them were pretty weak. CNN did its best to present them in full form. So there was a former rape victim. She's a mom. She got up. She asked Obama this. Why can't your administration see that these restrictions that you're putting to make it harder for me to own a gun or harder for me to take that where I need to be is actually just making my kids and I less safe? The president gave the answer that, As a great politician, he should have given, you have to be empathetic. But what he could have said, if he wanted to come across as cold yet correct, is, actually, ma'am, you're possessing a gun puts your children at greater risk. In 2003, they did a study, a woman living with a gun in the home, 2.7 times more likely to be murdered than a woman with no gun in the home. Then a sheriff from Arizona asked this one. How do we get those with mental illness and criminals, that's the real problem here, How are we going to get them to follow the laws? How do you get criminals to follow this law? Well, you're not going to. You know why? Once they start following the law, that strips them of their criminal status. This is this is the same argument. The criminals won't follow the law. It's such a bad argument. Once you ban guns, only criminals will have guns. I don't even understand it. It's a tautology, right? Once you ban beans, only criminals will have beans. But then I realized I was speaking the wrong language. They don't mean criminal definition person who has committed a crime. They mean criminal person with evil in his soul. Scary bad guy who's not bad because he does a law-breaking thing like owning a gun. He's bad because he's bad and the gun accompanies him on this path to badness. But that objection, such as it is, touches on another objection that background checks won't work. That was raised in the town hall meeting and people will say, hey, look at all these guys who've committed these high-profile murders and the background check didn't get him and the background check didn't get him. And I see the logic. I can see why you'd want to put the list out there. But what that will never do is list the people who were stopped by the background check because we don't know who these people are. There's no list of people who would have committed a mass murder but for the background check. The other part of it is the background checks are so weak because opponents of gun control make them weak and then they say, nah, these checks don't work. They're too weak. Hey, look, I'll acknowledge it's a tactic in other areas, too. Opponents of the death penalty make the death penalty so hard to carry out. And then they argue the death penalty is so arbitrary. It's often not even carried out. Let's scrap the entire death penalty. Yes, that's bad logic. Sometimes bad logic and effective strategy are one and the same. The worst argument against President Obama's new gun control laws wasn't even made last night. I heard it on NPR. They quoted Kim Stolfer, president of the group Firearm Owners Against Crime. 
the average person that commits an unintentional violation who decides to buy a gun or to sell a firearm and somebody says to him, oh, yeah, man, you can sell it online. He goes over and he does it, and it's a sting operation. Yes, let's not pass this law because someone can be tricked into breaking the law if that person doesn't know about the law. That is not an argument against the gun law. That is an argument against laws. I do not think Obama's new measures will be much of anything, but I do think there's a chance that they'll do, I don't know, one tiny small thing. And since we're talking about people's lives, I think that one tiny small thing, one, two, four percent, it's worth trying especially when the downside is the specter of someone having to fill out a little more paperwork. On the show today, it is an Antan Twig. I will award a Lopstar. But first, an interview about the geography of genius. I read a good review, a great review of this book in the Wall Street Journal today. But the online link to the review, all the bad stuff, or I worried this book was going to be a slog, that was for free. And then all the good stuff was after the firewall. So I'm telling you, it's a good book. And right here, right now, I'm bringing down the firewall. Eric Weiner is a man on a quest. It is a quest for truth. It is a quest for insight. But really, I have discerned that his quest is a quest to get all his travel expenses paid for, or at least a tax write-off. His last, he, he's been a foreign correspondent for NPR. He has written the books, The Geography of Bliss and Man Seeks God. Yeah, he traveled a lot to try to find God. And the new book is The Geography of Genius, A Search for the World's Most Creative Places from Ancient Athens to Silicon Valley. Eric, when's the last time you paid for a trip yourself? No, I pay for them, but the tax write-off part, and, yeah. and if anyone from the IRS is listening, I have receipts. I have <laughs> lots of receipts. So I find that, uh, I think I've read all of your books, and we used to work together on a radio show, so I don't know, there are a few people not related to you who've uh, heard or experienced more of your reporting than I have, but I find, so what you like to do is orient yourself in the beginning with a guru. This is frequently a tactic you use. Yeah. yeah who's the guru now? Be What's... Because I'm not so smart. Well, it's I'm... nice, too. It, it helps the listener, right? You put yourself in the position like, hey, I'm just a guy who's searching. You find someone who's very knowledgeable, the knowledgeable person orients you. Right. As opposed to a lot of books where you're the expert yeah, and you're exactly. the voice of God. You know, my books in a way are the education of Eric Weiner. And hopefully people can relate to it because it's the education of every man and woman. And in this case, it's the education of a non-genius. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm, I'm in search for. I mean, I, I don't see the point in trying to act smarter than you are. It's okay to play dumb a little bit if the audience, your readers, get a bit smarter because of it. So who are the geniuses you start off by uh, before you go anywhere? Who do you talk to early on? Or, well, I, I or geniuses about geniuses. Gen yeah, there's something called the science of genius yes. as opposed to the genius of science. Um, there are people who have been studying this for all their lives, all their careers. There's this dude, Professor Dude, uh, named Dean Simonton at UC Davis, and this is what he does. He's kind of a scientific mathematical guy, but he's applied it to creativity. And so he runs differential equations and everything, looking at geniuses through the ages, and tries to figure out who was a genius and what was in the water in these places when he was a genius. So I, I piggyback off of his ideas, but I try to put flesh and blood on it and actually go to these places. I mean, I just... I'm a place person. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, some, you're a people person. Yeah. Like, yeah. Not the people. Yeah. I'm yeah. not, no, not me so much. I'm a place person. I like places that have people. <laughs> no, I, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But I, I need to go somewhere in order to think clearly, in order to see clearly. 
And that's what I do. But the tricky part of this book is his history part, because it turns out, I don't know if you know, that Athens of today is a bit different from the Athens of Socrates' time. Yeah. yeah. I've seen I've seen their balance books. Not a lot of geniuses there. <laughs> no, no. And the question I was wrestling with was, okay, I'm traveling to these places, but I'm traveling back in time. And I said to someone at a Washington cocktail party before I got on a plane for Athens, what do I do? How do I imagine the Athens of 450 B.C.? And his answer was a one-word answer, squint. Mm-hmm. That was it, squint. Yeah, yeah. So I walked around squinting a lot. And you can do it. You can... Well, the and pollution's pretty bad there, too, so you, you might squint, have to do it. You squint, you know, yeah. you cover your mouth, but you... The point is, you, in all seriousness, something remains of these places of genius. I do think you have to put foot on pavement, breathe the polluted air, mm-hmm. walk in the footsteps. Uh, there, there's value to that. Okay, so th- this is the question. You said early on, I'm not a genius. Mm. Maybe you do have an IQ of, what is it, 150, but that's not your definition of Absolutely genius. Absolutely not. Just, okay. just forget this idea of the genius as a really smart person with a high IQ who did well in school. In fact, most geniuses, their IQ is not that high. Uh, William Shockley, who invented the transistor and many other things, had an IQ of 140, not that great. Um, That's pretty good. Pretty good. It'll but get not, you into the city's but gifted not that, program. But not that great. <laughs> right, and right. in fact, Mike, if you have a PhD, you are statistically less likely to be a genius than if you don't. So there's a, a sort of law of diminishing turn, returns, a, an inverse u-shaped curve that makes sense because you got to work hard to get a phd but also you have to really focus on one area Mm. you have to specialize and i really do believe that one of the great enemies of genius in our times is specialization all these historical characters i looked at from from socrates to leonardo da vinci of course to to gore they were interdisciplinary they connected the dots even einstein he was not a know-it-all he was a see-it-all he there were other physicists at his time who knew more physics than he did, uh, but they didn't make the connections he did. So it's not a genius is not someone who's super smart. It's not someone with a high IQ. It is, well, do you want to know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it yeah. is it is someone who I think meets the three uh, criteria for a U.S. patent. That is, they have to invent something surprising, useful, and novel. Novel, useful, surprising. Surprising, sort of the key element. And, and this is key, they need to be called a genius. They need the rest of us to say, hey, dude, you're a genius. So I really do think it's a, it's a social verdict. People are geniuses because we say they're geniuses. And I realize some people don't like that definition because they think, no, there must be something immutable about genius that transcends time and place. Well, there's not any more than fashion you know what's good fashion so van gogh didn't become a genius until years later when we recognized he was a genius right and And that's probably i I think that's true because a key insight from your book is mutual cerebral stimulation is that one reason that the geography of geniuses were that geography lends itself to geniuses is that there are other geniuses there and they could play off each other. Yes. And when you talk about Vienna, Mozart and Haydn and Beethoven and them kissing the hand of the other right. who has created such great work and mentoring the other and wanting to impress the other one. Yes, competing with the other one, cooperating, compensating 
for their inadequacies yes. often. And if you're not defined as genius, how do you know that the other mm-hmm. geniuses want to compete or know about you even? That's true. Yeah. But I want to broaden it a bit and say, it. you know, in Vienna, it wasn't just Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, Schubert. They were, they were the, the geniuses. But there was a whole infrastructure, a musical infrastructure at the time that made their genius possible. The Viennese were music nuts, yeah. right? They didn't call it classical music. It was just music. And they were music nuts. The emperor played violin fairly well. Uh, and the average street sweeper probably played an instrument, too. In fact, in buildings, I don't know if this happens in New York today, they had to come up with schedules for when you could practice so you didn't overlap with other people. So music was in the air, and the audience was appreciative, and the audience was demanding. And this is another... Can I use the word insight? Please. Yeah, insight. Please. I you asked enough. before the interview, you asked if you could use the word fuck. You didn't ask about insight. You can't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this, is the, this is the podcast where we embrace fuck and insight. In insight. In this. <laughs> fuck and insight. Wow. <laughs> I got this fucking insight that, um, that, that the audience is almost like a co-genius. You know, we don't normally think of it that way. We think, oh, you know, you know Mike Pesca is just going to think his genius thoughts and they're going to come out on his podcast and the people who download it are going to be the passive recipients of it. And it doesn't work that way. It's a two-way street. Mozart was aware of this. His symphonies were very much like Pixar movies. You're supposed to say, how is that? Oh, yeah. I know what you're, I, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> what I am I going to say? Book. Well, it's something like respecting the audience or wanting to impress the and audience. Appealing, and, yeah. appe- and appealing to several different audiences at the same time. Because he, he said this in a letter to, I believe it was to his father, he said, look, I write for the connoisseur, you know, that they'll get it. But I also include in my music elements that would appeal to every man. Just like you go to a Pixar movie and the kids get the jokes and there's a whole other layer of adults for the uh, of, uh, jokes for the adults so that we have a good time, too. The relationship between genius and audience is much more intimate than we think it is. And that, by the way, is why Springsteen is a genius and Mellencamp is not, why Tupac is a genius and why Ludacris, let's say, is not. He does rap fast. He's very skilled. But it's this thing on working on a bunch of levels. We, I think we address genius. What is genius? But I just want to get a little more into the geography part. What are the commonalities? What are the things that a place needs to cultivate genius? It won't always work, right? It's These are things that are necessary right. but not sufficient. So yeah. it needs openness but not too much openness. Well, it needs openness, but it also needs discernment. Mm-hmm. So to just say, oh, we need to be tolerant and open. Well, yeah. Las Vegas is a pretty tolerant and open well, place. Well, what's that weird city off the near Copenhagen or in Copenhagen, which is all like pretty much a marijuana bazaar? You right. know, it's like free love personified, but no genius has ever come out of there. Right. Yeah. We're out of Vegas. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, Jonas Salk. How dare who, you, Steve Wynn. <laughs> okay. Jonas Salk. Okay. Um, exception that proves <laughs> yeah. the rule. Um, Jonas Salk was a two-time Nobel Prize winner, pretty smart guy, and he was asked by a student, Dr. Salk, how do you come up with so many great ideas? And he said, well, it's easy. I come up with lots of ideas, and I throw away the bad ones. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of it, you know? So these places, these uh, places of genius, these golden ages, they're magnets, but they're also colanders. They have to sift out the crappy ideas. And this is where your idea for a museum of crap comes in. <laughs> exactly, because, you know, we tend just to focus on the successes. Look, you go to Florence, you go to the museums, you look at the great artwork, but you don't look at the, the failures, you, and you don't look at the process. That's what I find interesting, is you're, you're looking at the end result. So it doesn't, you know, go to the Uffizi Museum, doesn't really tell you anything about the process. It tells you about the end result, and it doesn't tell you about the failures. So, yeah, a museum of crap, where you had... You know, stuff that didn't work out. You had, like, you know, new Coke. You had eight-track tapes. Um, 
Trevor Noah with the Daily Show. Yeah, ooh, yeah. too soon, okay. too soon. Okay. And you, and you, yeah, you you have those there, and people, you know, like archaeologists, they love they love mistakes when they find something that was fucked up. I'm, I'm really just going yeah, down go for word. it, man. Really fucked up. They get excited because that shows them the process that went into it. Like, oh, that's. But by looking at how it's not supposed to be done, they could figure out how it was supposed to be done. Is What about wealth? Well, Florence was very rich, and that lent, lent itself to right. genius. Calcutta was not, right? Uh, it is not. Um, yeah. It had British wealth. You have to have a certain level. You need yeah. money. I mean, this idea of the starving artist, it's a myth, you know? I mean, a starving artist produces nothing but misery and stomach cramps, you know? I mean, you do need money, but then the question is what you do with it. And the Florentines were very good at leveraging their wealth. I mean, they were great talent scouts. They they were, you know, great at spotting great talent. Lorenzo Medici, Lorenzo the Magnificent was his name. That's, you got to love that on your business card. <laughs> you should try that, you know, like Mike the Magnificent. You know, that could work. And he's walking... I say it with the font on the business card, but yeah, a lot of people <laughs> just says it, say it explicitly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Lorenzo the Magnificent, he was... Uh, he was a Medici. He was the, the biggest cat in town. He's walking around one day, sees this 14-year-old stonecutter working on a statue. He says, that's a pretty good kid. You come live with me, and I'll set you up with the best teachers, the best materials. And that 14-year-old kid today is known as Michelangelo. So who's the genius, Michelangelo or Lorenzo the Magnificent? I would argue both. And, yeah. and actually that the city of Florence was the genius. When you lay out all these things, all these uh, aspects of different places that lend themselves to genius. It struck me that so many of these things are alive in even tertiary U.S. cities today. Like, if you compare Kansas City to Edinburgh, it maybe doesn't strike you as, ah, this is this is a place of genius. And yet, we have plenty of money. We're totally open. With the ways we can connect with each other, geniuses can have that network effect of finding each other. And then when you take out the fact that in the past, so much of the genius just cast aside women and cast aside people who were of uh, different ethnic stripes, not always, but often. So it seems today that so much of America, maybe Western Europe, would be places where great genius can flourish. Is it? Um, so in other expert? words, why, why don't we have a, a thousand Florences? Yeah, why isn't why is it, why isn't genius oh, that's, just flourishing that's, everywhere? That's a good question, boy. That's a really good question. I think there there's not a sense of urgency in a way in, in Kansas City the way there was in Edinburgh and in these other places, and there wasn't a sense that you could make a difference. And again, I think specialization is largely to blame. We all sit in our little silos and we're told to just stay put and not to talk to the people in the other silos. Um, that was not the case in, in, in the past in all these golden ages. People would cross borders. I mean, if you started to mouth off about nuclear physics or evolutionary biology, people would say, what does Mike Pesca know about nuclear physics or evolutionary biology? They'd be right. <laughs> yeah, but back in, in, you know, in Renaissance Florence, you know, imagine, imagine Leonardo da Vinci... Gump shows up at a college in Kansas City yeah. and says, you know, I'd like to enroll, you know, in your school and, and here are some of my drawings. I like to draw and paint. Oh, well, Mr. Da Vinci, we, we have a, a great fine arts program we can sign you up in. Oh, but I do some aeronautical engineering and military strategizing as well. <laughs> like, well, we have an aeronautical engineering program. And he'd be like, well, no, I want, I want to do both. They'd be like, yeah, 
fuck off. Yeah. yeah I'm using yeah. Yeah. Um, no, you know, you're right. They basically they don't, even let, mental health they don't services. even let kids play baseball and football at the same time. Right. Yeah. So I, I think I think that that is a big problem. Um, also, you know, we, we didn't talk about this, but, you know, these these golden ages also often blossom after some really bad shit happens. Yeah. And, you know, Athens, the city was sacked by the Persians. I hate when that happens. And and then and then they build the Acropolis. They start it over. Florence, you know, two generations, only two generations before the Renaissance, the city is decimated by the Black Death, the bubonic plague. And that was bad. A third of the city's wiped out, but suddenly doors are opened up because the person on the other side of the door is probably now, you know, dead. Mm-hmm. So it loosened things up. And, you know, maybe maybe the reason that we don't have more of these Florences and Athens is because Life is too good. Yeah. Too specialized and too yeah. good. Yeah. So we need we need some friction, some tension. Well, on that down note. Oh. Sorry. And if I know and if I know Eric Weiner, that is that is your chord. <laughs> <laughs> I've been I've been called Eeyore like. <laughs> I don't think that's an insult. I think that's good. Yeah. I mean, uh, who do you want to be? Piglet? Come exactly. Yeah. Eeyore. Yeah. yeah. I'm more He's t- relatable. I'm more of a tigger. Eric Weiner is the author of The Geography of Genius, A Search for the World's Most Creative Places from Ancient Athens to Silicon Valley and during this conversation in the studio right here. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks, Mike. I think we're both a little bit smarter because of this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so is our audience. Yes. The, the genius of the audience. We're, You're co- all the geniuses. Co-geniuses. 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 Thank Thanks. you, co-geniuses, for listening. On Friday, January 15th, here in New York City, the Lower East Side at the Crane Theater, there will be a storytelling event. I will be telling a story. It's called Story Collider. Before that event, if you're a Slate Plus member, you're invited to a cocktail party at the uh, KGB Bar. Join me and Frank and Matt Dix for drinks. The other storytellers will be up at the KGB bar before the storytelling event. For more information, if you are a Slate Plus member and want to go to this, go to slate.com slash live. And now the Antan Twig. It's a three-week period though it's been more than three weeks. Luckily, when you make up a word, you could define that period however you like. No, the period is the period. That's what it means in Old English, as I've asserted, and therefore it's become true. But there were the holidays, there were things, and you know, I didn't make that many mistakes. And since the Antan Twig is the part of the show where we correct, where we expound upon, where we amplify and where we retract, not making mistakes. Okay, it turns out I made a lot of mistakes. So my first and most glaring error, which was caught by, I think, everyone, and uh, 30 or 50 of you tweeted me about it, but Raymond Kenny gave me an email pretty early on, like 12 minutes after the episode posted, <laughs> saying on your interview with Storyteller Matt Dix, you said that Dotson changed its name to Hyundai in 1985. It was actually Nissan. Cecil Schweb helped advance that story by noting that Dotsons are back. Well, kind of. Nissan in March, announced that it was reviving the once popular brand, which was phased out in 1981. But you can't run out and buy a Datsun now. Why? They're only reviving it in Russia, India, and Indonesia. All right, another correction that I have to take care of. I played a clip of the Kentucky Derby. I said Larry Colmus made the call, and listener Andrew Loudon got in touch, and he said that, yeah, why Larry Colmus did in fact call the race for NBC, I didn't play the NBC feed, I played the track feed, and it was a different announcer. It was Travis Stone. And I'm like, yeah, Andrew Loudon, how do you know? 
And he said, I am the audio engineer here at the tracks. Okay, okay, I defer to you. A little while later, I was talking about really successful products with brand names that would just get a marketer today fired, you know, like Chips Ahoy Cookie or The Today Show. It's The Today Show. It really says a lot, right? Aren't all the shows on today? And in fact, don't we want people to DVR? Nah, it's The Today Show. So a few of you suggested other ones. This is the best one. I don't know who the person is, but the Twitter feed is called At Great Podcasts. And he likes the gist, so I think it's an app title. Anyway, at Great Podcasts tweeted to me that a brand name that still exists that really raises an eyebrow once you think about it because it's really anachronistic. It's in the UK. They have a mobile retailer called Carphone Warehouse. Oh, my God. Now, Michelle Z. Chen tweeted about old products that have ridiculous antiquated names. Noxima, which comes from no eczema. I did not know that. I looked it up to check that it wasn't folklore. No, that's where noxema comes from. No eczema. And I think that's a good example, but it's a slightly different category. Actually, it belongs to a couple slightly different categories. One is the very, very literal brand name. No doze. End dust. Okay, great name, but what's it do? It, um, it ends dust. Also a related category, food that tells you not what it is, or how delicious it tastes, but literally how to eat it, I'm thinking of peel and eat shrimp. Even if it weren't called that, don't you think we would have figured it out? Without the title, would we just be eating the terrible, bad, crunchy parts? I mean, they don't have to do that with crack and extract meat lobster or separate and lick Oreos. And then there's an entire category of goods that really believe the consumer has a hard time understanding how they work, like rent-a-car. Let's go to the rent-a-car place. I don't know. We go to bakeries. We go to pastry shops. We don't go to eat-a-cakes. Hey, you want to go down to the eat-a-cake and get some angel food? Strip clubs? How about we rebrand them? See a naked lady. Hey, let's go to the observer-body. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being anachronistic here. Maybe we should just call them ye old objectification hut. All right, here's another listener. My name is Colonel Brian Linville. I enjoy listening to your podcast every day during my commute to the United States Africa Command in Germany, where I serve as U.S. Army Middle East Regional Specialist, among other things. Now, he was writing about when I was talking about the word takfiri. Now, this is perhaps an alternative I put forth for Islamic terrorist, Islamic extremist. But he said that my definition of takfiri wasn't really correct. I said it means apostate. It doesn't mean apostate. If there were an English word, Colonel Linville notes, it would be something like apostasizer, one who accuses another of apostasy. See, these, these are who the Islamic extremists are, people like ISIS. They accuse others of apostasy, and takfiris feel obliged to carry out the sentence. Colonel Linville continues, of course, takfiris assess their fellow Muslims' piousness against standards that takfiris select. So in effect, under their perverse religious interpretation, the takfiris become judge, jury, and executioner. Let's stop there. Judge, that's fine. I'm on board with that. Judge and jury? I don't know. Why do we need the jury part? Can't rhetorically we just think of this expression as a bench trial, leave out the middle two syllables of jury? I get that. Better prosecutor, judge, and executioner. But really, it's the executioner part that's the troublesome part of that phrase. Oh, this guy's like judge, jury, and executioner there. I mean, without the executioner, the judge and jury part really do fall away, you know? 
you know, I don't like to go to the gym. I feel judged. All right, I get that. I don't like to go to the soccer stadium. I feel I'll be executed. That's a little bit different. That's a lot worse. All right, back to Colonel Linville. He just says that the term takfiri is useful in discussing the issue of Islamic extremism. He says that, yeah, terrorist is not that precise. Islamic extremist, if our leaders were to say that, that would condemn an entire religion. So takfiris would be interesting if we adopted the label. It doesn't mean apostate. It really means one who accuses someone else of apostasy and wants to kill that person. A little complex, but I learned something. I now quote listener Poor Pete. He writes, you mentioned hating acronyms that start with the word in the acronym, like there was a bill called CUTS and the first word was CUT. But I think I have CUTS beat in my hometown of Syracuse. There's a sign for a company called DTS, which stands for DTS Truck Service. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. The T and the S are truck service and the D and DTS are DTS Truck Service. That is incredible. Also incredible, though, as I was researching poor Pete's email, was that Philip Bump in the Washington Post not only shares my disdain for bills where the first word in the acronym is the name of the bill, he ranked and listed 365 pieces of proposed legislation for the worst acronyms, and it's really good to go through the ones at the tail end of the list. The worst acronymized bill was introduced by Daryl Issa, the FOIA Act. The FOIA Act stands for the FOIA Oversight and Implementation Act. So the F in FOIA stands for FOIA, but FOIA stands for another acronym, which is Freedom of Information. That indeed is a horrible name, as is the SCAN Act, introduced by Janice Hahn, Democrat of California. The SCAN Act, scan containers absolutely now. It's like Arby's, America's Roast Beef, Yes Sir. That's not the name of a bill. Speaking of delicious Arby's, here's a delicious act. The Cider Act. The Cider Industry Deserves Equal Regulation Act. Cider and Cider. Introduced by Earl Blumenauer. You know, Earl Blumenauer is the guy, the congressman, who wears a bow tie and bikes to work every day. He cares about bow ties, bicycling, and cider. You know, there is a Congressional Bike Caucus. It's informal, but its co-chairs are Earl Blumenauer and Vern Buchanan. Earl and Vern, the Bicycle Caucus. I don't know. I don't know if bicycles are going to supplant the NRA as the caucus that really gets its own way all the time in Congress. But you know, that Philip Bump contribution to my hatred of acronyms that begin with the first word in the acronym, it brings me to the Lobstar. The Lobstar is our award for a commenter, listener, or emailer, emailer to the just at slate.com, who improves our lives. And so, yeah, I could say, poor Pete, that was a good email, what with your DTS truck service. But I don't even know your name, poor, and I'm just going to ignore you, poor Pete. I guess your name pretty much guarantees that. I'm going to name the sub Lobstar of the Antan Twig, Philip Bump. The journalist who put that together, who, as far as I know, isn't even a listener. And I'm going to take this idea one step further and award the lobstar of the Antan Twig to the person who wrote a letter to the editor to the Concord Monitor. This is the gistiest letter to the editor I've ever read. He was opining on an article in the Concord Monitor, and the article's headline was, After massive Dunbarton maple is taken down, community group looks to salvage the wood for families in need. 
And that inspired this very gisty letter to the editor. Dear Concord Monitor staff, on Thursday I read a well-written article in the Monitor about the removal of a tree in Dunbarton. Unfortunately, I did not read any puns in the titles or the subtitles, even though the subject matter offers many possibilities. Town residents root for tree. Poor old sap. Old tree had gone to seed. Town axes tree rescue attempt. Maple was part of Dunbarton family tree. Residents saw removal as act of treason. An old tree makes like itself. Oh my God, that's so good. Not to mention that the tree was in a cemetery, another subject area that is just dying to provide puns. This was written by Eric Bartolotti of Henniker. If you know Eric Bartolotti of Henniker, if you could get in touch with Eric Bartolotti of Henniker, tell him he might like the gist and further tell him he is the lobster of the Antantwig. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi has informed me that I have been pronouncing her name wrong for a year and eight months. The I is silent. The A is drawn out. So her real name is pronounced Andrea New Zealand. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, actually is Steve Lichtai. There's a G at the end, but let's pretend there's not, he tells me. Crazy, right? And Andy Bowers, the chief content officer of Panoply, is actually, his actual name is Lil Bow Wow. Now that Shad Gregory Moss, the rapper formerly known as Lil Bow Wow, is just Bow Wow. Andy, sorry, Lil says, I'll take the old name. The gist, we've been pronouncing this wrong. The S goes in the front, and the rest is pronounced Ariel. So thank you for listening to Serial. Next time, the manufacturers of Bo Bergdahl's cage challenge the warranty. That's next time on The Gist. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.